0: If okay.
1: okay, everybody, I'll have everyone take their seat. And, uh, oops. Yeah, Does that sound pretty good, testing? Well, I can't hear uh, the sound. Okay. Does it look pretty good? Yeah. Well, we're going to begin, I think we'll begin with prayer. Hey, Lois. And uh, I want to welcome everybody here to our first Worldview Wednesday at Gospel of Grace. It's very exciting that we're kicking it off with a bang with Marxism, right? So uh, let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our evening, and we thank you for our mutual salvation that we have through Christ. We pray this evening that we would think well upon the errors of the Marxist movement so that we can contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And, Lord, we ask that you would put people in our path that we can dissuade of this evil movement, that we can be a blessing to our country as good citizens, and that we can be salt and light, and that, Lord, if there are those that are steeped in this movement as a result of this, perhaps they may be saved by the hearing of your word through your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, welcome. Come on in. Do, I wonder if we have enough chairs here. I'll We have a couple more chairs. Say, so as everybody's moving to their seats, what I'll kind of do is explain how I want the night to go. We actually have this room till 8.30 this evening, and I've got a lot of material to get through. So what I thought we would do is I think I can get through it in an hour... And then we would take a half hour of questions, answers, comments, show ideas, whatever you may have. But I will be picking on Bob DeWay periodically for his expertise in the emerging church. So don't feel slighted. All of us are going to be able to contribute. Um, It's better for me sometimes to get through the material, uh, to just keep going, and then at the end take questions and comments. So if you have any ideas or thoughts, you have a handout, write them next to the slide that we're on if it's particular to that slide and i'd be happy to answer yeah peter i don't have a mic um i don't have a mic but th- we're going to be recording this this is non amplified obviously but i just didn't know yeah. okay. we're going unplugged we're the acoustical I version so well with that let me um, let me begin by just Making a bold claim. Notice, I claim that Marxism is America's most powerful religion. Let me begin by telling you a story. In the 1980s, R.C. Sproul said that he took a taxi cab ride with the late great apologist Francis Schaeffer. Bob and I were just talking about him, and R.C. Sproul asked Francis Schaeffer in the taxi cab what he thought was the greatest threat facing Christians in America in the coming future. And without blinking an eye, very rapidly, Francis Schaeffer said statism. Now, statism, of course, is where the government becomes God. And that's why we're studying Marxism this evening. Marxism is an unusual religion, and I'll prove that it is a religion, because it makes the government God, and never forget that the government has the power of the sword. That's why it's so inherently powerful and insidious. So this evening, we're going to be to doing two things. Number one, we're going to be exposing the major tenets of Marxism. I'm going to be talking about, number one, how destructive it is, but also how pervasive it is. Okay? It is a pervasive religion that more people buy into, at least a lot of the dogmas and doctrines than you think. But we're also going to examine Marxism in light of Scripture. And what we want to see is just how profound Scripture is compared to the foolish ideas of Marxism. And at the end of the night, what we want to accomplish is, you remember in 1 Peter 3.15, the Apostle Peter says, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. He says, sanctify. Remember the issue in Peter's day was that it seemed that the government was God. But Peter said, set apart Jesus as Lord. It's not Caesar. It's not the state. It's Jesus. He's really the Lord. And he said, be prepared to give a defense for all those who ask the reason for the hope that lies within us in gentleness and respect. And so that's what we want to accomplish here this evening. Now, I'm going to begin by talking about who Karl Marx was. And uh oh, for some reason, my thing isn't advancing here. Hmm, there we are. I don't know why that. Let me just test it out here. There we go. Uh, Karl Marx, I want to begin with him, and then I'm going to be talking about one of Karl Marx's most influential teachers that he sat under, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Who is Karl Marx? Well, Karl Marx was born in a German family in 1818, and he considered himself a Lutheran as a child, but later in adolescence, he becomes disenfranchised. With Christianity, and so he goes off to academia as a young man, and he quickly becomes converted to atheism. Now, there's two teachers that influence Marx most heavily. The first was a fellow student. Remember, he studies under Hegel, so Hegel, think of him as the professor. But one of his fellow students is very form really forms a lot within within uh, Marx as well, and his name was Ludwig Feuerbach. Now, Feuerbach is an atheist. And so from Feuerbach, Marx really garners this idea of materialism. But Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel is where all of the bad ideas really come from. Hegel is a philosopher that teaches panentheism. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So what happens with Marx is he leaves academia and he goes to France. And in 1845... He is so extreme in his political views that he's expelled from France. Now, think about how extreme you would have to be in your political views to get expelled from France. I mean, you've got to be way out there, right? Well, this allows him time, then, to come into contact with Friedrich Engels. Friedrich Engels and Marx, they collaborate in writing the Communist Manifesto, which is completed, remember, in 1848. Now, think about the timeline in world history. Just 11 years later, in 1859, there's another very significant work that is finished. Remember, that was Origin of the Species. And so that further gives ammunition to Marx's materialism, there's no, nothing spiritual, and his atheism. All right? Now, who is Karl Marx as a person? He's rotten. We'll just put our cards on the table. He, he starts a family... But three of his six children end up dying of malnutrition. He's a mooch. He doesn't work. He doesn't bathe. He only has 12 people that even go to his funeral when he dies. So how does he live? He lives off his friend, Friedrich Engels, who has a textile company. So much so that this frees up then Karl Marx to sit at the British Museum and work on his magnum opus until 1867, which is Das Kapital. Now, all the major tenets that Marx really holds to are exposed in Das Kapital. The first major tenet, there's three. Number one, man is the pinnacle of the universe. There's no higher being than man. So man, therefore, determines what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. There is no evil, really. And so realize that Marx is a relativist. Why? Because if there's no objective standard, there's no God who anchors morality, every man is free to answer for himself what's right and wrong. So that gives him relativism. But he's also, the second tenet is that he believes religion is merely a man-made concept. So man creates religion and he creates God. Okay, so that's the second tenet. Now, the third tenet is atheism is the only article of faith. Okay, now what he means by that is that is the only dogma anyone should ever believe. And so in a Marxist society, Marx writes that not even agnosticism should be tolerated. So think about that. In a purely Marxist society, not even agnosticism should be tolerated. Now, remember, agnosticism, you have A without gnosis, knowledge. These are people who are merely saying, we don't know if there's a God or not. If that won't be tolerated in Marxist society, how much more would our ideas as Christians or whatever kind of theist you are, how much more would those ideas be rejected and crushed? That's how radical he is. Now, the big idea that Marx contributes to the world is a concept called the dialectic. And don't worry about memorizing that yet. Before you leave this evening, you'll understand this dialectic very well. There's different forms of it that Marx teaches, whether it be at the micro level or at the macro level. Let me give you kind of the 100,000-foot view of the macro level. What Marx teaches is a dialectic where history is seen as a process of thesis and antithesis where the thesis would be what he would say is capitalism, the antithesis is socialism, and those two fight, and what ends up coming from them is one day utopia, namely communism. Okay, Now, where in the world did Karl Marx get this idea of this dialectic? Well, he gets it really from a misunderstanding of his philosopher-professor, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, I think Bob and I would claim that Hegel is probably the most damaging philosopher. Would you say that, Bob, to infect Western civilization?
0: Uh, Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Now, what I want to show you is Marx fundamentally misunderstands Hegel. Now, here's why. Hegel is a panentheist. So remember, pantheism is all is in God or God is all. So there's no distinction between the universe and God. Well, panentheism is God is in all things, or all things are in God. And so some people try to claim that his view was developmental pantheism. But fundamentally, this is how Hegel understood God. He said God really has two poles. There's God, which is spirit, and then there's the world, which is material. And man is the go-between, because man is both spirit and material. Okay, so what he sees then is that God is in the world and he's drawing the world into himself. And so to Hegel, Christianity is the highest form of religion, not because you have a personal God, Jesus Christ, who dies for sins once for all as a substitutionary atonement, but because the incarnation is where God's spirit becomes material man. And he ushers in then this process whereby God is drawing the world into himself and so one day this is a form of spiritual evolution the one pole the material world will be drawn into god who is spirit and everything will be absolute spirit now by the way don't criticize me i'm just the messenger i know it's confusing because you know why he just made it up okay but he's going to draw all things into himself now what's the problem with that well, of course, there's going to be no judgment, will there? Because if God is drawing all things into himself, and at the end he judged the world, well, he'd be judging himself. Okay? So he's not going to, there's not going to be any judgment. So to Hegel, and this is the problem, I think, with Marx's misunderstanding, Hegel believed that there was nothing beyond nature since the world was a pole, that is the material world, that God was drawing into himself. So there's nothing beyond that. In fact, he was one of the first that starts de-supernaturalizing the Bible. Now, here's Marx's issue. Marx believed that there was only nature. Where did he get that goofy idea from Hegel? Well, let me just point to the screen here. Hegel says, what, there's nothing beyond nature. And Marx says, aha, materialism. No, it wasn't materialism. It was panentheism. God was drawing that pole into himself. Marx never really understands the dialectic of Hegel. Okay? But here's what you want to see. The big picture is this. Hegel is teaching a form of spiritual evolution. Everything is spiritually going to be drawn into God and heading for utopia. Karl Marx materializes that and teaches a form of material evolution. Everything is heading towards utopia through the battle between the haves and the have-nots. All right? Now... here's the issue. This really leads to America's new false religion, which I'm claiming is a spiritualized Marxism from the emerging church. Let's talk about the old Marxism. The old Marxism is that of Karl Marx. It's materialistic. And it comes to the United States in vogue in the 20th century, especially the 1960s through the media, through academia, through plants from the communist bloc countries. It comes in a big way to America, but here are the major tenets of this old Marxism. First of all, it's utopian. It believes, this is the Marxist worldview, that humanity will create perfection on earth. Okay? Number two, it believes in the Hegelian dialectic, albeit a distorted understanding of it, the materialized version. Remember, there's, there's Hegelian dialectic 1.0, and then you have Hegelian dialectic 2.0, right? Right? The original from Hegel is spiritual. This is material. All right? The third major tenet to the old Marxism is the belief in the goodness of man. Why must that be accepted? Well, the the Christian understanding of depravity depravity has to be rejected in order for people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and bring about utopia. All right? Now, the fourth tenet is it's materialistic atheistic. Now, here is the new marxism that is in vogue it's brought into the 1990s by the emerging church it is also utopian it believes that people will one day bring about perfection by god drawing all things in itself so that's the hegelian dialectic as hegel taught it it also believes in the goodness of man but here's the big distinction it's spiritual pantheistic and so What you have then is you have this new religious movement, which makes it hip again to be a Marxist. It makes it possible to become spiritual or be spiritual and hold to this dialectic. So if you think about it, on the left-hand column is the person's politics. It's how they vote in the voting booth. On the right-hand column is what they believe in church. And do you see why they would fit like a glove? Because your spiritual evolution ties so nicely to your materialistic evolution because they're both going to help bring about utopia and perfection. The big issue is the Marxists believe they're going to make heaven on earth, whereas we're saying, no, Jesus Christ brings heaven to earth. That is the millennial kingdom. That's the big difference. Now, I want to call on Bob here in just a moment because we're going to talk about the emerging church. The emerging church enables Marxists to be spiritual again. Okay, so no longer does someone have to be a rabid atheist to be a Marxist. The emerging church now spiritualizes Marxism, enables people really to hold on to a lot of the same ideas. Now, when we talk about the emerging church, there's no finer work, and I'm not just saying this because I'm biased, there is no finer work on the subject than Bob Dewey's book. Now, what I've done in this PowerPoint, I've simply systematized Bob's teaching in his book And so if you want to know more, get his book. And I'm not just doing a shameless plug. I really mean it. You'll understand the emerging church. But here's how I would systematize the emerging church to people. I try to make it as simple as possible by saying that the emerging church, think of it as three E's that drive the engine. So there's an engine that drives the emerging church, and there's three E's to that engine. The first one that makes the emerging church go is their epistemology. Now, remember, that's a simple, fancy term that means... Um, I guess it's an oxymoron to say simple, fancy, but it's, it's simply a term that's fancy, but it means the study of knowledge. Okay, Now, epistemology, here's where we differ with the emerging church. The evangelical world, and I would dare say the Bible, is built on what we would call a foundational epistemology. The foundational epistemology has a firm foundation comprised of the laws of logic, the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle. These laws allow us to stand upon them and reach up and know other things, including the Bible. How can you differentiate between Christ and Antichrist without the law of non-contradiction? You can't. So you need these basic laws to have any knowledge, let alone knowledge of the scriptures. So we could stand on that. Now, this is all being jettisoned by the emerging church. Now, there's one other piece that you have to realize about epistemology. The engine that drives our, our foundational epistemology is a theory of truth called the correspondence theory of truth. The correspondence theory of truth Says something is true, a propositional statement, if that propositional statement corresponds to reality. I've given this example before. Let's say I claim in a propositional statement that I have $3 in my pocket. If in fact there are actually $3 in my pocket, if you open that up, that would be true. Why? Because it corresponded to reality. Voila, very simple. All of that is being jettisoned, the laws of logic and the correspondence theory of truth by the postmodern movement. Okay, why? Well, because Hegel denies law of non-contradiction, and a man named Immanuel Kant said that we don't have access to the real world. So in its place, then, they come up with a system for truth called coherentism. Coherentism (coughs) transplants the correspondence theory of truth. Coherentism is a system of a socially constructed reality. In other words, it's agreed upon by a community, but it isn't necessarily connected to the real world. And Bob DeWay has a great example of this from that movie. What was the Monsters, Inc.?
0: Yeah, the mo- there was a movie that we had for grandkids to watch, or a grandkid to watch, I guess, and that somebody gave us. It was Monsters, Inc., and it's ingenious in the sense that they construct this non-existent world that coheres internally. So you have um, this city who gains its energy from kids screaming when they have nightmares, and so the monsters have to go into their bedrooms and scare them, so they scream loud, so there's enough energy for the city. And The thing is, it's kind of a dumb idea, but the thing that's unique about the movie is it coheres. And I I mentioned that in my book on Emergent. Yeah. Coherentism fails in this regard in a couple ways. One way, it's not attached to the real world. Exactly. The second way it fails is it rejects non-contradiction as foundational that's right but it uses non-contradiction to, to test prove for, coherence yes. so i'm sitting one time i was in a seminary class and they were all talking about the latest thing this is in the 90s when i was there yeah coherentism and i said well how do you know a coherent system is better than a non-coherent one
1: right right you're
0: assuming that it does therefore you're just a foundationalism with coherence as your foundation.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Foundationalist, I should say. Yeah. I was in a, a room. That class had some very, very bright people that ended up getting PhDs, some of which are running seminaries now.
1: Yeah, they can't refute it, can they?
0: Nobody, including the professor, offered a refutation to what I said. I'm still waiting.
1: Yeah, they, they won't have any. I was at an emergent yet. conference, and... Bill. I couldn't find anybody there that could refute that either. That's right. So let me build off of that idea. Think about the law of non-contradiction that Bob just mentioned. In order for them to test for coherence within their system, they have to use non contradiction, which supposedly they rejected in our foundationalism. Now remember, you can't get rid of you can't get rid of non contradiction. Yeah, because
0: if, if if something's contradictory, then it won't cohere. Exactly. Uh, and then I debated Doug Paget out and on. This is absurd. It is ignorant. absurd. And the only reason they have any inkling that it might work is this Segelian idea that God's pulling everything into himself. Well, then whether it makes sense or not, don't worry. We're going to get there anyhow.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so let's think about coherentism, too, this way. Coherentism isn't connected to the real world. Well, think about where does that come from, Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant says that there's two worlds. There's the noumenal world, the world as it is. and Then there's the phenomenal world, the world as it appears. And he says because of our imperfections, we are stuck in the phenomenal world. So we don't have access to reality. That's where postmodernity comes from. What's the problem with that? What Immanuel Kant is saying is that the way the real world is... It is such that you can't know the real world. Well, he's making a declaration about the real world. It's a self-refuting argument. It's self-contradiction. It's self-contradiction. So anytime you have to refute, you have a self-refuting argument, you don't have a case. So realize that their epistemology is absurd, but nonetheless they believe it. Okay? Now, the second issue, and this is really the bedrock of the emerging church, is their eschatology. Remember I mentioned Hegel believes that God has two poles. You have God is spirit. And the world, and he's drawing the world into himself, and so there's gonna be no. See, you and I, as theists, we believe what? God created ex nihilo out of nothing, the creation. And this creation in linear time is heading towards judgment. Okay? They reject that. Why? Because God is drawing all things into himself, and God isn't gonna judge himself. So their eschatology says everything is a bed of roses, everything's heading towards utopia. Okay. Now, here's the third issue, and I want Bob to talk about this, because this is very difficult. It's called emergence theory. Now, this comes from a man named Ken Wilber, who is a full-fledged pantheist. Mm-hmm. Ken Wilber teaches that God is enfolded in the creation, and the only way to really get him out, or the process that humans can use, is meditation. Now, again, don't shoot me. I'm just telling you what they say. Bob, is this true? How do you, how do you explain Ken Wilber?
0: I, uh, if I'm going to explain, it, I want to stand by you so I can yes. get my yeah. voice on there. Yep, and come over here. All right. Yep.
1: All
0: right, there we go. Yeah. Uh, wow. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The I had a whole chapter in my book on Emergent about Ken Wilber, and he was the one who most influenced Brian McLaren and yeah. Rob Bell, yeah. as far as I can understand it. And I read Wilbur, and I read some more Wilbur, and I read some more Wilbur, and it will drive you nuts <laughs> trying to understand it. But people are created in God's image, and they end up being somewhat rational, even in their irrationality. Yeah. And I finally got to the bottom of Wilbur. And so he bullies and so he's sort of a hybrid pantheist god was enfolded into nature and creation yeah which would be panentheism right but that that's a bad thing and all the chaos is happening because of problems with god being where he's not supposed to be yeah and so then god the, the the spiritual evolution of Hegel is the unfolding of God through the processes that we see
1: yeah.
0: in history and nature right so God is unfolding Now this is an inevitable pro process they say and <clears throat> it's going forward, but it has hiccups that to send it backwards okay <laughs> okay so you can't totally stop it, but there are certain things. They make it more difficult, hmm. bump it backwards. And the real obstacles to this are Christians. Oh, once you to know, know. Okay? Because we're claiming that there is a heaven and a hell, and that's final destinies. Hmm. That's the end of the synthesis. Right. That's the end of Hegel. Yeah. That's the end of everything merging into one, because now forever and ever and ever you have hell and you have heaven. That is so anathema to them. Yes. And if you teach that, you're you're damaging the process. Yes, yes. Okay, the emergent church does not believe there's a literal hell because they can't. Yeah. I knew that. I said that. It kind of bugged me because I was saying that for years. Yeah. And then Rob Bell came out with his book where he and did. And he just move. said it. And he said it, but it it was always there, but nobody would listen to me. Yeah. Because they hadn't really read Bell and they hadn't really read Wilbur. So now Wilbur is so convoluted and difficult and heady and intellectual. So somebody was interviewing him. Now, I have this in my book. Yeah. And they said, well, a lot of people can't understand your philosophy, uh, Ken. How are they going to ever get with this if nobody can understand it? His answer, just meditate. (laughs) So all you got to do you don't have to read you don't have to understand meditate now why well i believe this whole thing is satanic
1: yeah, yeah and when you is.
0: meditate you get plugged into the spirits of the universe these deceiving spirits right. going back to the garden where it says you shall be like god yes oh yeah now we get it
1: yes thank there you it is. thank you so much wow thank you It's so nice to have the author of the Emerging Church book here in the audience. Thank you. So, Bob, thank you so much for helping us understand Wilbur. And again, I don't know if anybody will ever really understand him, but to the best we can. Now, what are the results then of these things? Well, let's start with epistemology. If you can't know God objectively, what are you left with? Feelings. Just meditate. Just meditate. (laughs) That's right. It's mysticism. That's all you're left with. If you can't know rationally from the scriptures God... You're just left with experiences, mysticism. Number two, what about their eschatology? Well, there's no judgment, therefore, no cross necessary. It's progressive. What are we to do? The emerging church says we're to be missional. Now, you and I understand that from Matthew 28. Our mission is defined by Christ rationally from the Scriptures. And what's our mission? To make disciples of all nations by proclaiming the gospel. Their understanding of a missional is to go find the world and what they're doing. If someone's washing windows, someone's doing an art project, you join in because God is in the process of drawing all things into himself. And so no longer do you and I have a mission set by God. The emerging church has a mission that's progressive. They're progressing towards utopia. Do you notice that there's an insurance company today called Progressive? Have you you seen one called foundationalist (laughs) or uh, evangelical or conservative? No. Progressive is in vogue, not what you and I stand for. Okay? The third idea, what about emergence theory? Prayer is out, meditation is in. As Bob said, just meditate home because from emptying your mind, you'll come to contact with the spirit world, and God will use that to become unenfolded as it were. That's what will happen. Now, again, what's the emerging church? The emerging church is spiritualizing Marxism. The people that go to an emerging church that believe in a spiritual Hegelian dialectic love going into a voting booth and pulling the lever for a candidate that is a regular Marxist. They go hand in hand. So, again, the emerging church made... Marxism vogue once again now what I want to do is talk about how government ends up being God through the Marxist dialectic so I told you you would leave here knowing the Marxist dialectic here is what Marx understood here's his dialectic he taught that you had a constant battle in history between what he called thesis and antithesis and he used the terms typically the bourgeoisie and the proletariat The bourgeoisie are the landowners. They're the ones who control the factors of production. They're the business people, as it were. They're white-collar. The proletariat is the worker. They're blue-collar. And what he envisioned is you're always going to have a battle between these two groups, whether it was in the past where you had the feudal lords who were the landowners and you had the poor serfs. There's always a battle, just to make it this simple, between the haves and the have-nots. There's always a battle between these two groups, which is what Marx wants. You have a battle between the haves and the have-nots, and as a result of that battle, there's going to be a resulting synthesis, which, when this happens time and time again through history, leads to utopia, which is communism. And this, of course, is the very famous quote that Marx had. He said, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That's utopia. By the way, that was actually taken from a man named Louis Blanc in 1851, but Marx makes it vogue in a writing in 1875. That's utopia. Now, notice the problem, though, inherent to this dialectic. If the haves and the have-nots are going to battle, the haves are always going to crush the have-nots. Why? Well, because they're the haves. They've got the beans and the bullets right they have all the means they have everything and the have-nots will just get crushed and so this is where the government becomes god to force the synthesis what government must do is take from the haves and give to the have-nots that way they can actually contend and force the synthesis so that you can reach utopia Obama. that's yeah Obama exactly That's what it's all about. Yes, yes, exactly. So Marxism is a false religion that teaches you must take from the haves and give to the have-nots. Let me give you an illustration. Think about the battle right now, and I'm talking about cultural, but also at times military uh, battle between Palestine, the Palestinians and the Israelis. If a person cannot distinguish which group, either the Israelis or the Palestinians, is moral, I fear for that person. It would be akin to an individual saying, you know, with that battle between Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill, I can't really determine who's the good guy. It's obvious. The Israelis have given us, since 1948, many scientific advancements, medical advancements. What has the Palestinian movement contributed to the world? The better suicide vest. Right? Right? And yet the left in America, because they are Marxists, always sides with the Palestinians. Why? Because they're the have-nots. They don't think morally. They don't think rationally. They think through their dialectic. They must back the have-nots. Otherwise, the synthesis won't come about. So they are incapable, therefore, of moral thought. Right Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, come on, Eric. Does every single person who votes for a Marxist candidate really understand the synthesis? No. And I'll be showing you later that Marxism appeals to the masses not by them understanding this, but by appealing to their base, sinful nature, hate the Jews, hate that rich guy, covetousness. It's those things. And that's how they get the masses. But make no mistake about it. The professors understand this and they believe this doctrine, and this is their religion. They will back the haves, or the have-nots, rather, and take from the haves. Okay, now, let me just show you, again, how government ends up being God, even in the minds of those who claim to be evangelicals. How many have heard of Tony Campolo? I think most of us have. He is a self-ascribed evangelical. Now, remember, evangelical comes from euangelion in the Greek, means gospeler. That's a good newser. Well, what I'm going to show you is that he has more in common with Karl Marx than he does with Jesus Christ. And here's a quote that I think proves it. He and Jim Wallace, by the way, have the same views. Page 265 of Letters to a Young Evangelical, Tony Campolo says this. He says, There was no question in our minds that in the struggle for justice, God sides with the poor and oppressed against the strong and the powerful. For the first time, these students understood liberation theology, and they supported it if, by liberation theology, we mean the declaration that in the struggle to end injustice, God signs with the poor and oppressed against their oppressors. Now, what's happening in this quote even is Tony Campolo is doing a sleight of hand, a little bit of equivocation, because what he means by the oppressor is the have. And, of course, the poor are the have-nots. And so what is he teaching? That God and therefore you are always to back the haves Against the have-nots. Always. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had to Let me strike the record. You're always to back the have-nots and take from the haves. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. But I want to get it clear, okay? Thank you for picking up on that. Now, what does God say in his word? Are we to operate that way? Well, I'm not telling you that we're governed, by the way, by the Mosaic law. But God did one time run a theocracy named Israel. And so if you want to understand how God operated, you can look at his casuistic law in Exodus and to say, well, did God ever operate a nation like that where you always take from the haves and give to the have-nots? Listen to what God says in Exodus 23, 2 through 3. The Lord says, You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. So what God's word is saying is you don't always be partial to the poor man. Why is Lady Justice supposed to be blindfolded in America? Because Western civilization was built on the ethos of the scriptures. And so Lady Justice is blindfolded because she's not supposed to care in the courtroom whether you're rich or poor, whether you're male or female, whether you're black or white or pink or whatever in between. All that's supposed to matter, remember the scales of justice? All that matters are the merits of the case. All that's being thrown out. Notice the justices, Sotomayor, Elena Kagan. They believe it's their job to help the have-nots against the haves. Okay? Let me give you another thought. Remember in 1964 you have this belief by Lyndon Baines Johnson that he can eradicate poverty. He starts the war on poverty. The liberals and the Marxist left in America has been waging war against poverty for years, right? Listen to what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 15.11. He says, The poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and the poor in your land. Now, first thing I want you to realize from that quote is, yes, God does expect his people to take care of the poor. We see the same thing in the New Testament. In Galatians 2.10, Paul was ready to take care of the poor, right? Uh, the people in Israel were supposed to let part of their land remain un, um, what's harvested. The? harvested? Thank you. <laughs> Had to look to a farmer there. Unharvested. <laughs> so why? Because the poor then could glean from the crops and take care of themselves. Okay, so yes, we're supposed to take care of the poor. That's what God did for his people. We're supposed to do that in the New Testament as well. But here's the issue. Notice God says you'll always have the poor in the land. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 26, 11. He says the poor you'll always have with you. So let's see. Lyndon Baines Johnson says we can eradicate the poor by, of course, taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. But Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who created all things and was raised from the dead, says you'll always have the poor with you. It's a biblical deal. It's a religious idea. It's not not politics. It's religion. It's what we believe to be true. That's the issue. So again, government ends up being God, taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. Now, let me give you a quote from Saul Linsky. I know most of you are probably familiar with that name. He wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. The premise, I read the book, it's miserable. The whole premise of it is he wants the new Marxists to be less less offensive so you don't just go if you're a marxist he writes a book basically saying don't just go say we're going to burn the place down be a little bit more coy about it let's do it gradually let's be suave about our marxism that's what he's really advocating well notice in this quote on page three of his book olinsky a self-ascribed marxist says the prince was written by machiavelli for the haves on how to hold on to power rules for radicals is written for the have-nots to take it away Now, you probably notice the person that I have on the screen there is our president. I don't want to be disrespectful, but you know where he's teaching in that classroom? That's a Saul Linsky classroom. Saul Linsky set up community organizing classrooms where they would teach how to take from the haves and give to the have-nots in Chicago. This is Barack Obama teaching in Saul Linsky's classroom. And if you look closely on the screen, he's talking about power analysis He's teaching the Alinsky method of power acquisition. Why? Because he's a Marxist. And they believe taking from the haves and giving to the have nots. Now, why did people vote for him? Let me have you come back in time. Think about back in 1979, we left a very miserable president. He was a miserable failure. The misery index was so high that I, as a six-year-old, knew about it. That's how bad it was. I don't think I was more astute than any other six-year-old. 1979, Jimmy Carter's a miserable, miserable failure. In 1980, the evangelical movement is robust enough to at least vote in Ronald Reagan. 2012, we also experienced a miserable president. Why are they not able to vote out Obama Because the evangelical movement is so broken from seeker-sensitive and the emerging church Mm -hmm. that now Marxism seems what Christianity is all about. We don't have Christians that can reason anymore. To them, Christianity is Marxism. Why? The Hegelian dialectic, whether it's spiritual or material, who cares? That's all just details. They're going to create utopia. Take from the haves and give to the have-nots. It's a religion, and it's false religion that we must correct. Okay? Now, where does this all come from? Well, remember, when we go back to Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, you had the beginning of the human movement where they wanted to take government and make it into God. Let me show you Genesis 11, verse 4. Remember, the nations are supposed to be dispersed. God tells them to disperse, be fruitful, multiply, multiply but they all come together. Genesis 11.4, this is the people coming together to build government. They, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Now, let me to stop there. Notice that phrase, a tower whose top will reach into heaven. What's interesting is later on in this passage in Genesis 11.9, this tower that they're going to build is called Babel. In Hebrew, the, B, the second B is, sounds like a V. Bavel. What's very interesting is that throughout the entire Old Testament, you'll see Babylon from time to time, right? In, in fact, quite a bit. Babylon uses the identical spelling for the Tower of Babel. In other words, when you read the Tower of Babel, it's Babel. When you read Babylon, it's Babel. Why? Because Babylon is the nation that epitomizes the rebellion against God. All right. listen to what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 51, 53. He says, though Babylon should ascend to the heavens, well, isn't that what's happening with the tower? They're trying to have the tower here at Babel ascend into the heavens. Why? To usurp God. So Babylon, he says, should ascend to the heavens, and though she should fortify her lofty stronghold, from, from me, the Lord says, destroyers will come to her, declares Yahweh. Now, notice the goal of building this tower and the city. It's not just a tower, it's a city too. It's to let us make a name for ourselves. Not a name for a God, but a name for ourselves. Right? Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Now, what's interesting is listen to the Lord then and what he does. Genesis 11:5 through 6, it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Notice this phrase where it says, Nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. There's only one other passage in the entire Bible that's identical to that. It just has a different context. It's Job 42.2. Job 42.2, listen to what Job says. He says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you see how now in Genesis 11.6, it's being applied to man. Man wants to do what God can do. Bob just mentioned the very first sin from the garden. You'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. The bottom line, the history, what the battle's really about is two different cities. We're either going to have Babylon or the new Jerusalem. God builds the new Jerusalem by his grace, and that will, that will succeed. And Babylon, built by men, will be thrown down. In fact, that's what God does here for the first time back in Genesis. His scattering was merciful. Genesis 11, 7 through 9, he says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language "...so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth." Now notice this term confused that I've highlighted in red, and also you see it down here as a verb, confused, right? Both verbs. Well, that comes from Hebrew, Naval. Now, what's very interesting is when you look at the consonants in Hebrew of Naval, confused, it's exactly the opposite of bricks. So let me just show you what this looks like. If you're to transliterate it into English, the bricks that humans built back in verse 3 looks like LBN in Hebrew, if you're to transliterate it. When God confuses, it's the exact opposite, NBL. And that's what's called a it's called a sound chiasmus. Okay, and so the very sound in Hebrew shows you reversal. And so it shows that what mankind tries to build, yeah. God reverses, he destroys, he throws down. That very same thing will happen when? At the end of the age. Babylon is built again, and it's going to be taken down. The new Jerusalem is where it's at. Now, the one thing I want to point out here, notice that it, it's not that they just stop building again, The tower. Notice they stopped building the city. Again, the city is the battle. It's either Babylon or it's the New Jerusalem. Okay? So here's the point. God was merciful in scattering them abroad. Why? Because now they don't have just one government. They have many governments. And the many governments, if one of them gets out of control, the other governments will come gang up upon it And like, for instance, Adolf Hitler gets out of control. The other governments build their forces and they reduce Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany. And therefore, it's a merciful thing. If you have one government and mankind, of course, are evil, you're going to have evil prosper. So God's scattering many governments is merciful, okay? Now, let's talk a little bit. By the way, I have Revelation 13. You'll have it in your slides, but I put it at the end of my message. I don't know if I'll come to it or not. But realize at the end, Babylon is built again. But here's what I want to do. I want to talk about God's role for government versus Marxism's role for government. After the flood, God has given his intention here for government in Genesis 9, 6. That's where God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So here, government is to restrain evil through capital punishment. Why? Because men and women are valuable, they're created in the image of God. The Apostle Paul builds on this, I think, in Romans chapter 13. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Talking about the government, Paul says, For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the role of government, according to the scriptures, is to what? To restrain evil. Why? Because men and women as individuals are precious, made in the image of God, and they need to be protected. And so that's why the many governments were scattered so that they could accomplish that. That's the role of government. God's role for government is to restrain evil until he comes, and then he'll do it. Okay? Now, let's look at the Marxist role for government. And I'm going to do it by showing you two symbols. The first is a book that's written, and it is entitled Books, Not Bombs. I've seen this, by the way, in bumper sticker form. Now, just guess who wrote this. Was it a group of right-wing evangelicals? No, you'll be shocked, like your head is sewn to the carpet shocked, This was written by college professors. College professors, in fact, listen to what they said. They said, this book undertakes a thorough examination of the evolution of peace ideology within the context of opposing war and promoting social justice. Anytime you see social justice, what's that code word for? Communism. Marxism, taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. Dear ones, I want you to think about how insulting this is. My grandpa fought in the Battle of the Bulge. It was below zero. He had Panther tanks, Tiger tanks, Panzerfaust, MG42 machine guns going at him. And here you have someone says, no, you didn't need to do that. You just, books, not bombs. (laughs) Right? Think about how insulting that is. You all know loved ones that have fought and bled for this country. Okay. The next war, what I say we do is have the professors go fight it. Right? This is vile. Okay? No, freedom was won because people had to shed their blood to reduce violence. And remember, God ordained that because people need to be protected because they're made in the image of God. Now, let me show you another powerful symbol that comes from the left the peace symbol. Bertrand Russell, a Fabian socialist, he's a known Marxist. And he loves this symbol. Why? Because it's occultic. It is an upside-down cross that's broken. Why is it that these men can't stand Christianity? Well, let me read to you why. I'm going to read to you here from Isaiah 2:42, or from Isaiah chapter two verse four. Isaiah says this, "And he will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Who's going to accomplish that? Jesus Christ. But these Marxists, they are going to make government into God, and they're going to accomplish it. And so, therefore, the role of government is distorted. The Marxists are saying restraining evil is evil. What's the real role of government to the Marxists' left? It's to redistribute wealth. Take from the haves, give to the have-nots. If you end up fighting against someone who's doing evil, you're not beating the plows, the, the spears into pruning hooks and the swords into plowshares. You're not bringing utopia. Again, you and I say that only comes when Jesus Christ comes. For now, we need the government to restrain evil. Uh, some time ago, was, I think in 2007, I told a friend of mine who was a Marxist, he, I see him at the workout club, and I said, I'll make you a prediction. My prediction is when Barack Obama is done with his presidency, actually it was 2008 because he was inaugurated, 2008, so when he becomes president, after his term was up, I said, you will have a very high debt and a very diminished military. Now, why did I say that? Because I'm some genius? No, because that's what Marxists do. Take from the haves, give to the have-nots $17 trillion in debt, U.S. military, the smallest size since before Pearl Harbor. Russians and China on the move, okay, militarily, all right? That's the way it is. All right, now, let me give you another thought. I was debating a leftist one time, and we were talking about tax policy, and they said to me, you know, it's evil that you Republicans always want to have a flat tax. And they said, well, that's interesting. He said, why do you think it's evil? He says, "Why do you think it's immoral. And they said, now, there was one nation that really had a relationship with God. And there was one theocracy in history. So God ordained one government to have a flat tax. In fact, we read about this in Deuteronomy 14.22. The Lord says, you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. Now, the term tithe there is a ser in Hebrew. It literally means a tenth. Now, again... I am not saying that you and I should go back to the Mosaic Covenant. We're New Covenant people, but what we conclude rationally is you certainly cannot say that a flat tax is immoral. Why? Because God ordained it. So was God immoral when he had a flat tax? You see, to the left, the only moral way of going is what? The progressive income tax. I love my friend Peter always says, those who pay no taxes have what? They have no skin in the game. In Israel, everybody had skin in the game. No matter what you made, you made, you gave 10%. And therefore, it mattered. Now you have people that don't give anything, and they simply tell the haves how much more they ought to give. It's evil. It doesn't work. And that's why God had it set up this way. Right now, let me give you some thoughts. Biblical view, mankind is uniquely created in God's image. Man's soul is everlasting, not the state. Right? Now contrast that then with Marxism, materialistic Marxism, the old version. That's, um, of course, the materialistic view. Man is a cosmic accident, macroevolution from goo to you via way of the zoo, right? <laughs> so there's nothing special about us. What about number two, spiritual Marxism? God is in everything, right? Therefore, mankind is not distinct. Oh yes, man is, or God is in us. But God is also in the sparrow, in the squirrel, in the lizard, etc. So there's nothing unusual about us. So think about this. Exodus 20, verse 15, the Lord says, you shall not steal. And what we can understand from that is that property, private property rights, are something that we can have. Why? Because thou shall not steal does not make any sense unless you own something. And so, again, Western civilization is built on this idea of having private property rights because of thou shall not steal. You can actually own something. And so the biblical worldview is that individuals have property rights. The Marxist worldview is no, no property rights. It's all owned by the state. And in a few slides, I'm going to show you uh, a writing or an article that comes from Rolling Stone magazine this year, 2014, where it advocates no private ownership. It's unadulterated communism. That's becoming very vote. Okay, so dear ones, these things matter. This is a false religion. You see, it's one thing to have, for instance, a Mormon come to office. And you and I would differ, obviously, over the Trinity and over salvation, right? But he's going to go his way and we'll go our way. And we'll try to convert him and he'll try to convert us in the free marketplace of ideas. But Marxism... Controls things. It takes away your paycheck. It has the power of a gun. It's a very fearsome religion indeed. And I think we have to alert people to that. All right, now let's talk about Marxism's, Marxism's appeal to the masses. Certainly, the average leftist who votes the way they do doesn't understand the Marxist dialectic, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, all these things. You're right. So, how in the world? Do these professors and the elites get people to think in that way? They appeal to their base nature, to their sinful nature. In one area in particular, covetousness. Listen to what Paul says here in Colossians 3, 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What's interesting in this passage is in the Greek structure, covetousness, is being singled out for the one that is particularly idolatry. So in other words, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire are set off. And then you have covetousness, which in particular is idolatry. Okay, now, why is covetousness idolatry? Well, there's a scholar that Bob and I like. His name is Peter O'Brien. He says it better than I can. Listen to what he says about covetousness. This is from the Word Biblical Commentary, page 182. He says, normally it refers to the sin of acquisitiveness, the insatiable desire to lay hands on material things. The word group appears only occasionally in the Septuagint, occurring chiefly in the denunciation, denunciations and warnings of the prophets about dishonest gain and enrichment of the politically powerful by means of violence. Now, think about this. What the Marxists do is the appeal to the covetousness of people. I want what that rich guy has. That's what they appeal to. Covetousness allows people to want to take from the haves and give it to themselves because they consider themselves the have-nots. Now, there's another tactic that the left use, and that is demonizing anyone who disagrees. It's name-calling. It's ad hominem attacks. There's a great man of the conservative movement who understands Marxism very well. He studied it at Columbia University. His man, the man's name is Dennis Prager. I think many of you have heard of him. Now, I disagree with him theologically, but he is absolutely right when it comes to Marxism. Marxists will label you and I people that should not be listened to because we're bad people. And he uses an acronym. He says they six-herb us. Now, the acronym six-herb is sexist, intolerant, make sure I get this right, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, racist and bigoted and that's all the left has to do they six herb you so why should your ideas be listened to in the public square you're a have they should take from you and create the synthesis they covet what you have and they six herb you we're intolerant bigots that's ad hominem so they don't have to listen to any of your arguments that's what appeals to the base sinful nature of man So realize the masses don't have to understand the dialectic to be Marxist. They don't like Jews. That's the base nature of man. It's a spiritual battle. There's covetousness and name-calling. That's what they do. They build their base. All right? Now, Marxism's appeal to the masses, I promise this quote here from Rolling Stone magazine, January 3, 2014, this article is entitled, Five Economic Reforms Millennials Should Be Fighting For. Number one, guaranteed work for everybody. Number two, social security for all. Number three, take back the land. Number four, make everything owned by everybody. Number five, a public bank in every state. And they go on to say this. This is just one quote from the article, they say, in any case, we have to stop letting rich people pretend they privately own what nature provided everyone. Take from the haves, give to the have-nots. Why? Because they have to force the synthesis. It's Marxism. Now, this isn't just some rag. This is Rolling Stone magazine. And I think it shows you how in vogue the doctrines of Marxism really are. And again, these are the people who want the power of the state. Okay. It is also a religion of sec- self-exaltation. Think about this. This is a passage about the Antichrist in Daniel eleven thirty six or 37. Let me read it quickly here. It says, this is about the Antichrist. It says, then the king, that's the Antichrist, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished For that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of of women. Nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. What's fascinating to me about this is notice this phrase where it says, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Now, I've never been a big fan of guess who the Antichrist is. But I've heard as of late people say, well, it must be a Muslim. It must be a Muslim. Islam is on the rise. Well, check me if I'm wrong, but last time I remember, if you're going to be a Muslim, you have to say there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. But notice who this Antichrist is, is one that shows no regard for the gods of his fathers. Now, I think that that ties in much better with the Marxist movement because government is God. That's what happened in Genesis eleven. Genesis eleven four, let us make a name for ourselves. What does Barack Obama cry out on February fifth, two thousand eight? We're the ones we've been waiting for. He's the one who's gonna make the seas recede. Barbara Walter says this. This is December eighteenth, twenty thirteen. She says, I shouldn't say this during Christmas time, but we all thought, she's talking about why people were disappointed in Obama, we all thought he might be the Messiah, unquote. Dear ones, I'm just showing you that I think the Marxist idea of we are God, like Sheree McLean combined with the government, is much more in keeping than Islam for the last days. Okay? So it's a religion of self exaltation. They are the ones who know what you ought to do with your money, your property. They know who should live and die, right? With abortion. They are God. And they will use that power. If they can get more of it, they will. They'll use the IRS against us. You know, 20 months prior to the election, 20 months prior to this last election, not one single Tea Party 501c3 got their 501c3? Right. Not one single one. Okay, now, I believe in free elections, but as soon as free elections are over, what do you have? Now, one of our Tea Parties got 501c3 access. 20 months prior to the election. It's not good. That's what Marxism does. It's a religion. Now, what are the true origins of Marxism? Salvation comes from God. That's the truth. And that salvation leads to the new Jerusalem. But the lie is salvation comes from man. That's works. That's what leads to Babylon. Let me show you something interesting in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through Mm 9. Remember, the Marxists believe that government is God. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9 says this. It says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people Jacob, His allotted heritage. Notice all the nations. Remember when God scatters them, all the governments? It says that He sets them according to the sons of God. Bob and I have proved that the sons of God are the demons. So all the nations are given over to the demons. Now, what does the left make God? What do the Marxists make God? Government. But government, according to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, is under the demonic realm. So you have a demonic God, right? That's where they've put their trust in. Now, just so you know that there's more passages than this, think about in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is praying and he's praying to Gabriel, and Gabriel says, yes, I would have come to help you earlier. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I was restrained by the prince of Persia. Now, the prince of Persia is obviously some demonic being. But notice he's linked specifically to a nation. So think about it. The Marxists want government to be God, but this text is saying that all of the governments, all of the nations are run by what? The demonic world. It's a spiritual battle. That's what it's all about. And so it's very frightening. Now, notice Israel alone belongs to Yahweh, but they wanted to be under the stoichia. But in the 70th week of Daniel, God will wrestle them back. Ephesians 6.12, listen to what Paul says. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The famous Ronald Reagan, I love him, he said... Communism only works, he says, in heaven where they don't need it and in hell where they already have it, all Right, <laughs> Dear ones, this is a spiritual battle. The demons are over the nations. Isn't it any wonder that Marxism is becoming such a powerful religion at the end of time, all right? I want to give you a quote from Saul Linsky. Again, this man has had a lot of influence, obviously, over Barack Obama. You've seen Barack Obama in his classroom in this very presentation, Solvinsky says this in his preface, and rules for radicals. This is what he, this is his um, forward. He says, "Lest we forget, and least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgment to the very first radical from all, from all or, from all or legends, mythology and history. And who is to know where the mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which? Remember, he's a, he's a postmodern." He says, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. That's who he dedicates his book, Rules to Radicals, for. Now, two months prior to Olinsky dying in 1972, he was interviewed by a magazine. I won't even mention the magazine, but the magazine, I have a transcript of this. The magazine asked him, two months prior to Olinsky, they asked him, What about the afterlife? Do you believe in it? Olinsky says this. He says, if there is an afterlife and I have anything to say about it, I will unreservedly choose to go to hell. The interviewer asks him why. He says, hell would be heaven for me. All my life I've been with the have-nots. Over here, if you're a have-not, you're short of dough. If you're a have-not in hell, you're short of virtue. Once I get into hell, I'll start organizing the have-nots over there. Then he asks them, the interviewer, Why them? Alinsky says, they're my kind of people. Marxism is a religion, and it leads to the pit of hell. It's a false religion that many of our kids are being sucked into. They don't know these things. And so they're falling for it because their teachers teach it. The schools are inundated with it. Now, what to do about it? Well, I say order a pizza and wait for the rapture. No. (laughs) That's the cheap way out, right? (laughs) No, let me just remind you of what's going to happen in the end. Revelation 17, verses 14 and 17, talking about this one order, Babylon being built again under the Antichrist, government being God. It says, These will wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. What ought we do about Marxism? Well, number one, we know that God is in control from this passage, and he wins. And all of these things have not escaped his notice, okay? But number two, we call Marxism what it is. It's a false religion. Too many people today say, well, you know what? Marxism, that's politics, When you talk about the left-wing movement, that's politics. No, it's not. It's a religion. And I want you to think about the professors at the colleges that your kids go to. They get tax dollars to teach their religion, okay? You and I have to get a 501c3 to teach ours, all right? R.C. Sproul calls that being on the reservation. And as long as you and I don't make too many waves, the government doesn't come to the reservation, but, dear ones, people are perishing because of that. This is a false religion. These are religious ideas. And our first, we have a First Amendment right to say this is wrong. This is false religion. We're going to address it as a religion. Think about it. The radical atheist Marxist in academia, they have to believe that the universe either came about because it created itself, which is impossible. How can something not exist and then exists to put itself into existence, right? So the universe can't self-create itself, so what's the only other option? The universe is eternal. What's wrong with that? It violates the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. How can you have an infinite lifespan of a universe with a finite supply of usable energy? That doesn't work. So the rabid atheist Marxist believes either, or I should say they have to deny either the law of non-contradiction or they have to deny a law of physics. They're either irrational or they're unscientific. And yet, that's called politics and secular, and you and I are called religious. That's the problem. All right, now, you and I have to be about the Great Commission. Remember, what does Hegel teach? Hegel teach everything is heading towards utopia. No, it's not. It's heading towards judgment. And you and I have the words, of the living Christ, who actually is Lord over all. And so you and I have to proclaim the gospel. Be about the Great Commission, not be missional. Proclaim the gospel so that people can understand there is judgment coming, and the only way out is through Jesus Christ. That's what we're we're to do. We are behind enemy lines, and our task is to save as many people as possible before the Lord comes.